Pray with me. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your kindness to us and how it is that you love us. And now, Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you would bless us in the richest way, uh, that we might know you, the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your suffering. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Acts in chapter 16. I have a bit of a dilemma this morning. My watch stopped. <laughs> it's troubling for a number of reasons. One is that uh, I've never preached without that watch. Karen gave it to me when I was ordained. And I always said when it stopped, I was done. But it's just, I think, a battery thing. We've had that problem before. But, uh, but I'm borrowing Scott's watch. But, Scott, your watch says five to eight. <laughs> What, what, what time is it, really? Is it five? Three till nine. Okay, good. You just didn't change it yet or something. I don't know. Okay, good. <laughs> I, just, I, I like five till eight. Uh, I can, uh, that really does give me enough time, finally. But that's good. All right. So it's nine. Okay. All righty. Acts in chapter 16 and verse 11. Paul write, or Luke writes this, the word of God. So setting sail from Tros, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Uh, we remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, and we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of uh, Thyatria a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he puts them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took uh, them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. That's all I really need to read this morning. Uh, Remember, as we've been working our way through the book of Acts, there's a couple of questions that are set before us. And this morning I'm going to introduce a third that we have the luxury of asking uh, because of this particular passage. Uh, The two we've been asking is what's the nature of this mission to which we've been called? And secondly, will it succeed? What's the nature of the mission to which we've been called? uh, and, 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 And will it succeed? And, and as I mentioned last Sunday, if you have no interest in this mission, uh, the book of Acts will be completely boring to you. If the mission isn't important to you, if this is something that burns in your gut, then Acts won't be uh, really um, uh, all that uh, important uh, uh, to you. Um, and we know that our lives won't be the same as Paul's as he goes about this mission. Uh, in fact, none of us will be like him in the sense that he was a founding apostle, That only happens once. uh, And that he was able to write uh, the very word of God. That was something unique to him and the others who wrote the New Testament. Uh, Hopefully some from our midst, however, will go into places where the gospel has never been preached. Uh, We can be sending and preparing. And hopefully some amongst us have already done that. And perhaps others over the course of the life of this church will, will do that. Most of us, however, will find ourselves in the context of this mission either as senders, preparers, or right here, right in our own community, taking the gospel to places where it has yet to be named in the lives of people. Uh, In some cases, that will be with our own children as they're born to us. We have this fantastic opportunity, as this little baby this morning, little James, to be the ones as parents, as church, to tell these children about Jesus. Uh, that's a great opportunity for us. That's part of this, part of this mission. Uh, for others, members of our family, for others, people in our neighborhoods, for other people in our garden clubs, for other people at our, the preschool our kids go to, for the, other, the parents of the kids who, who play Little League with our kids and, 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 and in our offices and in our classrooms and in various venues throughout as, as students come to, to our community, we have opportunity to tell them about Jesus. As students come from other nations into our community, we have opportunities to tell them about Jesus. So this mission is something near and dear, very important to us, and the reason being is that it's God's mission. Uh, we see it from the very beginning of God to have for Himself a people who will worship Him and praise Him. So He creates Adam and Eve with, in some sense, that desire, if you will, to have this people for Himself. We know they sin, but then He tells us a, a way of redemption through this one who's to come. And we see it through the promises given to Abraham that, that God is on a mission to have for Himself a people who will worship Him. And there's going to be one come from the seed of Abraham. And we see it as, as the Old Testament progresses. We see it as the promises are made to David that one will come and sit on your throne forever, this very one who will be the Messiah, the Christ. Uh, we see it as the prophets give, give word of testimony to this one who is to come. We see it as the Lord Jesus comes. This is, this is God's mission, if you will, to have for himself a people who will praise him and who will, who will worship him. 
And then we see that he enlists us in the context of this mission. Before Jesus ascends, he talks to his disciples on, 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 this, on a couple of different occasions. Most notably, remember we remember that occasion where he meets with his disciples and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And remember, this is my mission. I'm going to be with you always to the very ends of the earth. And so, so he tells us about this mission. And then we, we remember, even as the book of Acts opens, that Jesus is very blunt with his disciples and he declares them to be his witnesses. And he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And, and you're my witnesses. This is my mission. This is the, the very mission of God. And so we must be concerned about it as his people. He's going to put it deep within us. If it, if it isn't important to us, then we need to repent. And we need to be honest. And we need to say, God, I, this mission doesn't really mean that much to me. Basically, I'm, I exist to kind of have a nice life and you've been given me that and so I appreciate it. Uh, but I recognize that you've called me to something. When Paul writes in Second Corinthians uh, that we're to be ambassadors of Christ, he's speaking uh, most notably of himself and his companions, but that applies to us as well. He puts it like this in verse 14 of Second Corinthians 5. He says, For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And then he goes on to say this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And so Paul says, this is, this is our mission, to be ambassadors for Christ, to go on his behalf, to speak on his behalf, to live in such a way on his behalf that people see us and then are reconciled to him through this, this, this message, this, this message that's called the message of God, the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, uh, gospel means good news, we know that. But in the days in which the New Testament was written, gospel meant great news. Gospel meant epic news. When gospel was proclaimed, not just the gospel of Jesus, but when that word gospel was used, it meant that something has happened in history that will change everything. They could use it in the context of, of a king dying, for instance. That was epic, that was gospel, if you will. That was news that would change everything. When, when, when a son would be born to the king, that would be great news. When a great victory would be won, that would be gospel in a sense. Something's happened that changes everything. But now here's gospel, gospel. This is real gospel. This is, this is everything changing gospel. Christ has come. And so Paul knew that he was entrusted with that. He knew that the church was entrusted with that. He knew that we are entrusted with that. And we mustn't take it lightly. We must understand that. 
And I have to be honest with you. I guess I don't have to be. <laughs> I'm going to be. That, that, that there are times as I read through the book of Acts, it isn't as thrilling to me as I think it should be. Because I'm still reading the Bible, looking for stuff that's going to help me get through tomorrow, or today even. That, that's just going to bless me, if you will. It's going to make life nice for me. Remove some guilt, help me with some plans, you know, have the strength of God to do this or that. But as I read this, I go, okay, okay, people get told about Jesus and they believe. Blah, 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 blah. I go, whoa! You see, that's the very thing that should thrill my soul. And as I come to this passage in Acts 16, I see three very, very different people coming to faith in, in sort of different ways, if you will. We don't know quite about this slave girl, whether she came to faith, but in the context of that and the fact that this demon was exercised out of her, out of her you, you get the impression <laughs> that she probably did in all of that. But first we have this, this woman, Lydia, who's, who's a businesswoman. And, and uh, she's probably not Jewish because she's just termed a worshiper of God rather than a Jew, but a worshiper of God, probably like, a, uh, like Cornelius that we read about in Acts chapter 10, kind of a God-fearer, a Gentile God-fearer. Uh, she was a transplant into Philippi. Um, uh, she was probably a business rep, if you will, uh, living there, selling purple goods. Now, to us, that doesn't mean much, but that meant she, she sold BMWs, essentially. I mean, she sold the best of the best. To, to, to something was purple meant that it had been dyed, and it meant that it had been dyed in purple, which was the most expensive dye. Therefore, uh, given that that was the most expensive product, she was, she was selling uh, the top of the line. And so it's likely that she was wealthy. It was likely because she had a house that she could invite these missionaries back to. And so there's something significant about her. Uh, she was in Philippi, this Roman colony, this place that had this identity as being Roman, even though it was outside of Rome, if you will, but probably a lot of retired Roman citizens, a lot of retired Roman soldiers would have come there to form this Roman colony. So there she finds herself in business. Not many Jewish people there. Uh, the reason we know that was because there, were no, there wasn't a synagogue. To have a synagogue, you needed 10 Jewish men. But there wasn't a synagogue. There was simply this place of prayer where women were gathering to pray. Now, it's almost too ironic for us even to get a grasp on. But think about Paul. He was a Pharisee. He grew up a Pharisee. Thus, he grew up praying like every other Pharisee. God, thank God I'm not a Gentile. Thank God I'm not a slave. And thank God I'm not a woman. And where does he find himself in Philippi, this place he didn't set out to go, but he finds himself in Philippi. And who does he encounter first? A woman who's a Gentile, and then a slave, and then another Gentile. That makes up the, the, the Philippian church being brought by this transformed Pharisee named Paul. And so he finds himself in this prayer time. And, 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 and notice how Luke puts it. I mean, Paul tells them about Jesus, but the way that Luke puts it is that the Lord opens her heart to pay attention to what was said. Now, as I read this account of Lydia, I, I get the sense that this was a relatively quiet conversion. No huge bells and whistles, no jumping up and shouting, nothing, but, but the, you get this sense of, 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 of quietness that God opened her heart and she believed. 
She'd been seeking in some sense. She had been coming to this place of prayer. She was a worshiper of God, yet she hadn't heard about Jesus. And yet still there needed to be a work of God to open up her heart. As we read in chapter 13, that all those who were appointed to eternal life believed. We know that, that however else we think about coming to faith in Christ, we know that it's a work of God. We know that he has to overcome our resistance. We know he has to overcome our sin. The Bible says that we're dead in trespasses and sins and all of that. We know that. And so even in this case, this person that was seeking God, this person who was a worshiper of God, still there needed to be a work of God. And he opened her heart that she would believe. And then she and all her household were baptized. <clears throat> we don't know who was in her household, but this is one of those passages that we look to and say that um, we don't know if she was married. We, we don't know anything about her other than she had a household. She had servants. She had extended family living with her and they were all baptized from the youngest to the oldest and then she entertained them and then we read about this other person this slave girl uh, and, and again this is I would call a very loud conversion if she came to faith this would be a loud conversion she's running around this slave girl demon possessed uh, a fortune teller uh, making money for her for her employers This is they, they had her to I don't know I don't know if she picked lottery numbers. I don't know horse races. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know what she did to make the money, but she did. And she must have been good at it. People don't believe that demons exist. People don't believe that there's an occultish world out there. People don't believe that, that there is something to, to this in reality. But the Bible speaks to the reality of it. And she began to run around saying of Paul and Silas and Timothy, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now that's pretty amazing because she was exactly right. And the question is, why did she do that? Could have been that this demon was compelled to do that. Do you remember when Jesus was walking around, his disciples hardly knew who he was, but every demon knew exactly who he was. And they were, you almost get the sense that they were compelled to confront Jesus when he came onto the scene. I know who you are. You're the son of God. What do you have to do with us? And so here Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke come upon this slave girl. And for whatever reason, she seems compelled to announce what they're doing. Maybe it was insidious. Maybe it was the kind of thing where the plan of Satan was that if somehow uh, uh, he could have... Paul linked with this demonic slave girl that it would somehow lessen his impact, lessen his ministry. We simply don't know why she was saying that. Nor do we know why it took Paul many days to deal with it. Uh, that's always a surprise to me. I'm always thinking, why didn't he just hear it the first time and said, you out, I'm getting on with my work. Um, but he didn't. And I, I don't know if it was because he had a, a sense that if he did, that um, what actually happened would happen. Uh, and he was hoping to avoid that, whether uh, he just simply didn't feel, have a sense of the leading of the Holy Spirit to deal with this. Again, we simply don't know. We only have the facts here. But after many days, since Paul was annoyed, probably distressed about what was taking place, and so he uh, cast this demon out of her. Uh, again, a very noisy way of, of someone encountering the gospel. And then something happened that seemed all too common, and it's becoming all too common in Paul's life. Uh, because of this encounter with the culture, they turn against him. And trumped up charges are had. The, the real charges, of course, were that, the, you know, 
he exercised this demon and now he's exercised our prophets. And so uh, they were angry about that. They created a trumped up political charge. And so Paul and Silas were stripped. And again, we mustn't rush through this. We will, but, but again, allow it to, to sink in what happened. They were stripped, humiliated. They were beaten. It appears unmercifully. That's why Luke says with many blows. This wasn't just your, your average beating, if you will but with many blows, and then their bloodied bodies were taken to a dungeon, really, an inner prison, um, and they were put in stocks in their feet, which would be unbelievably uncomfortable, and in a dirty place where sanitation would be unimaginable. And so here they were, unjustly there, for being believers. And then, you know the story, you know what happened, they began to pray and sing. We don't know exactly what their prayer requests were, but it seems in their singing, it seems quite joyful. In fact, so much so that the, the other prisoners were listening. And you get the sense that this was what I call stethoscope listening. <laughs> this, was, this was listening with a purpose. This was listening like, what in the world is going on in there? So it would take their stethoscope and listen to see if they could discern what's really happening in there. What's going on? Nobody's ever sang before in here like this. Nobody's actually praised God in the midst of these kinds of conditions. But there they were. You know, the earthquake came. You know, the jailer thought, uh-oh, I better kill myself. Because he knew that if the prisoners escaped, then he would be killed anyway. So he might as well take his own life. It would be less painful probably that way. And so... Uh, Paul shouts to him, don't worry, none of us have left. Now, why none of them had left at that point, I don't know. Could be that it was too quick for them to leave. Could have been that they were sort of shaken by the earthquake. Uh, could have been that they were just surprised and not know really how to react. But at that point, Paul took advantage and said, don't kill yourself. Amazing how kind he was in the midst of that moment. Others would probably have said, I don't care about you, but I'm getting out of here. But, but he said, don't kill yourself, we're all here. And then you see the conviction that comes upon the jailer. What must I do to be saved? I don't think he meant, how do I get out of this mess? I think he knew what Paul and Silas were about. Because Paul doesn't mince any words. He cuts right to the heart of it. And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved, you and your household. Now it's interesting he didn't say believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Man wasn't a Jew, so Christ really wouldn't have that all that much influence, impact on him to think Messiah. Believe on the Lord Jesus. There's one who's the Lord Jesus. There's one who's, who's Jesus, who's come in the flesh, just like us, to represent us, to, to give himself for us. Believe upon him. He's the Lord. He's the one who's conquered sin and death. And Paul would later write to the church in Philippi that though he was in the form of God, he did not regard, regard equality a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then we know after he was resurrected and exalted, he was exalted on high and given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the Lord Jesus. And so no doubt Paul went through the, the gospel there. How quickly, how long it took, we really don't know. It seems probably fairly quickly in the midst of all that. And he said, this is for you in your household. It doesn't mean that just because the jailer would come to faith that his whole household necessarily would. But again, there's this always, there's this connection. There's this connection between one in the household who believes and everybody else. And again, we mustn't ever forget that. That when you and your household believes that, 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 that God desires for you to cause that to permeate and to, to be told to everybody else in the household. This promise, Peter said, is for you and your children and all who are far off and all who are near. And so everybody in that household, so he emphasizes the household. So the whole household came. The jailer got the whole household to hear Paul speak of these things. And then what probably was a beautiful scene, a basin of water was brought. And Paul and Silas, their wounds were cleansed, were healed, were, were, were washed by the jailer himself. And then they in turn took water. I've often wondered if it was the same water or from the same basin. And they baptized him. And he says, just as water cleanses these wounds, water symbolizes the very blood of Christ that cleanses us. So three very different people. And so what do we see there? We, we see in all of this that, that the mission goes on, that the mission is successful, that nothing can stop it, that you have very different kinds of people. You have, you have a, a, a soft-hearted, it appears, person. Still, God works in her heart and opens her to believe. You have this one who's completely out of her mind, who's possessed by Satan himself, by a demon. And yet, God still can break through in that moment. And you have this, this, this guard who cares nothing except for himself. Thinks nothing, no doubt, of putting these people in this inner prison. It's just his job. But then, boom, God breaks through into his life and brings him and his household. Brings him to faith. So it's a successful mission. But I want to ask this question that we have a luxury of asking today, given where Paul is in Philippi. And that question is, what is the means through which God uses to continue this mission and continue its success, if you will? What's the means that God uses? And the reason we can ask that question is because 10 years after this fact, Paul writes a letter to these very people. He writes a letter to them and he, and he speaks to them about how it is that they're to continue living in the midst of the place where they find themselves. And that is obviously this letter we call uh, Philippians. Um, and we notice that they still have essentially uh, the same situation going on. There's opposition. Notice in Philippians in chapter 1 and, and verse 28, Paul writes to them that they're not to be frightened in anything by their opponents. So there seems to be still these opponents in Philippi. Uh, not only that, he speaks to them of their culture in chapter 2 and verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And so they, they have opponents. They're living in a generation that's twisted, that's crooked. You remember the, the uh, author of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes says, who can make straight that which is, is crooked? So they live in the midst of this, this uh, crooked generation. In chapter 3, we realize that there are false teachers. Paul even says 
that these false teachers can be appealing to us because they appeal to our very sinful natures, our own desire to, to handle it ourselves and not turn to Christ. And so that culture in which Paul found himself in the book of Acts still exists in Philippi, and I would suggest exists here even in our midst today, that there are opponents. We live in a twisted and a crooked generation, a generation that still thinks that it can be successful, that it can conquer all of the ills that have been plaguing human beings since the very beginning. And these ills that we've made very little inroads in over the years, like injustice, like a lack of compassion that people have for each other, like families that don't get along in relational issues that exist in the lives of real people, death, the sickness that comes. Uh, all of those things still plague humanity just like they plagued it in the days of Paul, just like in the days of Abraham. It's always been there and yet we still think that we can handle it. We still think that we can do it. That's a twisted and a crooked generation to think that we can do this without God. Still the same in the midst of our time. Still false teachers. Still the intellectual atheism of a Richard Dawkins Still the teaching of a perverted sexuality that says that we really can have it all, we really can explore all the pleasures that we so desire uh, and, and life will still be good. A, qu a twisted and a crooked generation. And so Paul comes and he says to them, here's the confidence I want you to have. Philippians in chapter 2, in verse 12, Paul writes this, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says, this is the means by which this is going to continue. God is at work in you. Believe that, understand that, embrace that. And so now live that out. You don't work it out in hopes that you'll find God, but you're working it out because God has found you. You're working it out because God is working in you. And so, the, so know that and believe that. In chapter 1 and verse, uh, verse 3, Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partners with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So Paul is saying, listen, God's going to bring this work to completion. He's working in you. He started that work. He's going to bring it to completion. And there's two things I think that Paul has in mind here. One is our salvation. He saved us. He's going to bring, us to bring it to completion. But the second thing is that we're partners together in the gospel. And so he's going to bring that to completion as well. He has a plan for them. He has a plan for this church. They're partners in the gospel together. And God's going to bring that work to completion. And he's saying, it will work. It really will. Because God's at work in you. And when I hear that, it's, 
It's a great comfort to me. It's a great comfort to think not only is God going to bring my, my life, my salvation to completion in Him, and I'm secure there, but He's at work in us. And He's called us to something. He's called us to this mission. We're partners in the gospel. And He's saying, don't worry, I'm at work making that come to completion, to fruition. And so what, what should we expect? What should we expect as God's at work in us? What should we expect to see as he works in us? And I don't have much time, so I'm just going to pick out a few things in this letter that are, I'm just going to lay them out for you, uh, for you to think about. First, uh, first this, that we should expect that God will focus our attention upon Christ. So when we're working out this salvation, we're working out what he's working in, What's he working in? He's working in us a focus of attention upon Christ. As we read through this letter that Paul writes back to this church, that seems to be what he's he's putting in them. No matter what else happens, for instance, in in chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. See, Paul's in prison in Rome when he writes this letter back. And And he's in prison... And, and there are other people out there preaching the gospel in such a way that's making Paul's life even harder. No doubt they're criticizing him. And rather than being bitter about that, what God is working into Paul to make this mission continue, so he doesn't get bitter and stop, is this focus upon Christ. And so he says, I don't really care what they say about me. As long as Christ is being preached because his focus is there. And then he goes on to say, a few verses after that, he writes, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, all that matters to me in my life is that Christ is proclaimed. And, and, and I know that I can say that because I live on for the, for the joy of the people of God. And if I die, that's gain. So what am I worried about? He says, what God is working in you, what we should expect to see in our lives, what we should pursue with all of our might is a focus upon Christ. And then finally, in in chapter 3, he writes this. In verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What we should expect God to be doing in us. And if you don't sense him doing in us, doing in you and doing in us this, We need to hit our knees and say, God, make me aware of this. Show me how you're doing this. Please continue to work this in me. It's a value system that says, Christ is of the utmost value. What I desire in my life is to know him and to know him in two dimensions. One, to know the power of his resurrection, that is, this transforming power that comes because of the resurrection of Jesus, to know this progression of holiness in my own life, to know the power of his resurrection, and also to know 
the fellowship of his sufferings. That God would call us into sacrifice and cause us into suffering so that we may know Jesus more deeply. I see, that's when we know it isn't a superficial thing. It isn't just praying for power. It's praying that we would even know Jesus to the extent of his sufferings. Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And my Father will love you and I will love you. And we will come to you and I will, I will manifest myself to you. John fourteen twenty one. He says, if you're living for me, if you're living as I command, then I'll, I'll show myself to you. And the context there is that we're to love each other and always in love their sacrifice. And so he's saying, if you love as I love, you know the fellowship of my sacrifice, my sufferings, and you'll really see me. And Paul says, I want that. And as Paul writes to this church, he's in a sense saying to him, this is what God is working in you. He's working in you a focus upon Christ that will supersede everything else. That's where he's taking you. Make sure that you're getting it. Make sure you're progressing in that way. So begin to focus upon him with every ounce of your being. What would Christ think? What would please him? How can he strengthen me? How can he help me here in the midst of this situation? Well, there's way more. But we'll stop there. The mission to which he calls us is this mission of the gospel. Of glorifying God by, in our lips and our lives, speaking, showing forth the reality of Jesus. Will it be successful? Yes. Why? Because it's God's mission and he's going to do it. And he's going to do it in the midst of our lives, here and now, by working in us a deep focus upon Jesus. We must expect that. And we must work in such a way that we're focusing upon him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, be with me, be with us. Burn within us a passion for the mission of God to have for himself people to worship him. Compel us by your love to know that we're ambassadors for Christ. Lead us, I pray, to focus our minds and hearts upon Christ himself. Work in us the willingness to lose everything for his sake, to lose reputation, to lose money, to lose health, to lose even our lives. Father, may we so focus upon him that we would rejoice in him. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, um, remind you that the response uh, to our benediction is this one. I believe in the Lord Jesus. Amen. That's what Paul said to the jailer that all must profess in order to walk with Christ. So please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him.
who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us. To be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, I believe in the Lord Jesus. Amen.